Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. It's time for The Rant, a segment where we talk about anything and everything in sports. Uh, if you've not been following me on social media yet, let's connect. At Blader God is the handle on both Instagram and Twitter. Drop me a note and uh, tell us what you'd like to hear us discuss on this show in the coming weeks. But if you want to share your thoughts with the, on the topics that we'll be talking about today, please send us a text at 963-11938. And joining me on the show today are Mark Lim, former sports journalist, and James Walton, sports business lead at Deloitte Southeast Asia. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. Hi, guys. Good morning. Yeah. Are you guys as sleep-deprived as me? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Just about uh, the first weekend. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just started, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, can you imagine? Uh, but one thing that we have to talk about, horrible scenes from the Parken Stadium in Denmark after former Spurs midfielder Christian Eriksen, he collapsed on the pitch in the 41st minute. Reports are coming out from major news outlets that he's out of danger and conscious. Uh, James, I'll come to you as you, I know you, you followed him a lot through his career in Spurs. Horrible, right? First of all, to start with. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things you, you, you hope and pray you never see on the pitch. Uh, you know, as a Spurs fan, I remember watching the, the FA Cup match where, where Fabrice Mwamba collapsed mm. and, and the game was, was abandoned and, and thankfully he was revived. But also, I mean, you look at incidents, Mark Vivian Foy, of course, died on the on the pitch, the former Manchester City player. So you do fear the worst. And, and the news coming out this morning is that, you know, they he did actually lose a pulse at one point. Um, mm. they, had, they had to give him CPR. They had to revive him. Um, but at least he now seems to be in a good condition. But you do wonder um, what it will do for his career. You know, Fabrice Mwamba never played again. Um, so I think it will be interesting to see what, Eventually, they'll have to do some kind of diagnosis. Was it a cardiac arrest or, or was it just some kind of heat stroke with complications? Maybe he swallowed his tongue or, or something like that. Uh, I guess that will determine what, what the impact is on, on Christian Eriksen in terms of whether he can return in this tournament, which seems optimistic, or, or indeed in the near future. Uh, Mark, you know, I couldn't watch that incident because it's too much to watch. It's the, I mean, having played the game and I've seen some leg breaks during games and stuff like that. It's just too much for me to watch. And uh, the worst part is the broadcaster kept broadcasting the entire thing. I mean, this is where you talk about media responsibility. They should have just cut the scenes and gone back into the studio or something like that. They were showing his girlfriend crying and so much so the team had to form a, a wall around him, which was uh, quite heroic of them just to be there and protecting their teammate. But uh, what do you make of that? I mean, that was horrible, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, at first, okay, perhaps there was confusion on what was happening, but I think after a while, you know, I think you've got to give the players respect, especially if, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was that serious where, uh, you know, there was CPR being performed and, you know, he was in danger of, of losing his life, basically fighting for his life. So kudos to the, the team captain. I think the Danish captain, basically, uh, from what the reports I've read, was the one who sort of initiated everybody to make a circle around. And, uh, and you could see the emotions. You know, all of them were basically facing outwards and, 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 and literally crying. Uh, and, and you could see uh, even through the, the, the wall of players, uh, you know, CPR being administered. So uh, it was very, very uh, um, traumatic, I would say. And, then, and I guess the question remains whether or not uh, they should have continued the game. I know that both sets of players actually agreed to continue the game. And uh, obviously there was thought of, uh, you know, a congested fixture if you were to ex actually play the game at a later date. But I'm not so sure whether mentally the players were in the right frame of mind. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, as, as you will probably uh, mention later, you go through the results, uh, Denmark did go on to lose the game. So, mm. uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I personally thought UEFA could have just made a decision and, uh, and you know, and, and just allowed the game to be either either abandoned or, you know, or, or postponed or something like that. Because I... I generally think the players, no way the players could have been in the right frame of mind to continue. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, just, just a bit of a public service uh, announcement here. James, are you CPR trained, by the way? Uh, unfortunately, I'm not, no. Yeah, and what about you, Mark? Uh, I I did, but that was like 15 years ago, so I Actually, probably need you know, to get recent. Yeah, funny enough, my wife and I, we did the, the course six months ago, just because yeah. we've got two boys playing football and just wanted to. So if you are listening to this, if you're not CPR trained, go and get yourself trained. It's actually a very simple um, uh, process. Uh, it really saves lives. But coming back to the game, um, like you said, uh, Mark, earlier, I will come to you, James, on this one. The game didn't really matter afterwards, did it, to be honest? 
Yeah, I mean, just just very difficult. I mean, I have to say, I, the, the initial reports that came out were that the, the, the teams agreed to play, and UEFA praised them, that the team wanted to get out there and finish the match. But it's interesting because the Danish manager has since come out and said they were given a choice mm. of finish it now or finish it at, at noon tomorrow. Um, and he basically said there's no way the players are going to sleep tonight. And I can't imagine, you know, getting dressed up, getting on the bus and coming back here again tomorrow. And that given those choices, you know, we took, once we knew he was okay, we, we took this choice. So it, it doesn't seem like it was quite as magnanimous a, a decision as UEFA initially kind of presented there. But yeah, I mean, you, you could see it in the way they play. I mean, Kasper Schmeichel doesn't usually make a lot of mistakes like the one he made for, mm. for the goal. Um, the, the penalty, I mean, Ericsson is usually the penalty taker for Denmark. Exactly, right? yeah. Played there, played there just didn't look remotely confident or, or, or like he wanted to be there. I, I, it's difficult to have any kind of edge in those kind of situations and to, and to really be full-blooded and, and committed because even if you know the guy's okay, there's always a, a thought in the, back of your, in the back of your head. And in fact, Simon Kjaer, the, their captain, he, 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 he came back to the pitch and he played, but he needed to be substituted in the end because he said he just couldn't, he couldn't focus or concentrate. So he actually got substituted later in the game. Hmm. Uh, Mark, do you think that, uh, you know, at the back of this sort of incident now, FIFA, UEFA, whoever the major um, event promoter or somebody who, who runs these tournaments have to put some sort of rule in place where something like this happened, the game should be definitely called off and, and played on a different day? I think it'd be tough to, to actually put it in a black and white rule because, again, you know, uh, what, what is what is a serious injury? So if it's, uh, you know, a head trauma, or, which is also serious, or does it really have to have a person's heart stop? So I think in general, I think you need to sort of feed off on on the the emotions of the players and and you know and and I guess the teams. In this particular case, I mean, it was to me it was very clear that you know there's just no way that the team could or the players could concentrate again. You know, after almost looking at everyone, you know, breaking down and crying. And I think there were some reports uh, that that came out that even as the team that was was warming up to restart the game, uh, players were still breaking down and, and crying. So. Uh, you know, you you would feel for the players to actually go out there and perform. I think, and and uh, and and you know, it, it was it was crazy. And I think it would have been fairer if you just if you fix just in mind. I think both sides and even Finland. I mean, looking at it, would have just gone away with a, with a draw. I think mm. in the, the proceedings, Denmark was dominating the game anyway. So I think Finland, in in retrospect, you know, could have just taken a draw, and I think Denmark would be happy to have taken a draw as well. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I question whether or not yeah, it should have really gone on and playing. All right, let's uh, go for a quick break. When we come back, we continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. This is The Rant, and joining me on the show today are Mark Lim and James Walton. Uh, send us a text if you'd like to share your thoughts with us. Maybe even send a, a good luck message to Christian Eriksen on the show here. The number to text is 963-11938. Uh, let's have a look at the other fixtures that happened last night, this morning. Wales, they took on Switzerland, and despite taking the lead right after halftime, they couldn't keep the lead, uh, allowing Kiefer Moore to score off a really good header. Um, Maybe I'll come to you um, first, James, on this one. Um, were you impressed by any of these teams? Switzerland, um, Switzerland for the first half and, and right up until they scored, and even 10 minutes after they scored, looked like they, they were going to be a bit of a threat. They were making a lot of chances, and, and Bolo was really cutting through that midfield uh, at will, really running at the Welsh defence. They probably could have and should have scored a second. And then just when it looked like it was a matter of, of how they kill the game off, they suddenly took their foot off the gas um, and let Wales back into it. And, and to be honest, Wales didn't do a lot. Wales really mm. didn't look like, like scoring until they got a set piece. And, and Moore is, is a dangerous player on a set piece. And Wales have players in, in Ramsey and Gareth Bale that can really deliver a set piece as well. Um, and, and I think really Wales... Wales stole one here, and Switzerland will be kicking themselves because in this group with Turkey and Italy, um, you know, okay, Turkey got, got a hammering from Italy in, in the first game, but you, you do have to think that Turkey are probably a better bet than these two. It, it feels like this is, this is playing for that third place and getting into the next round. And, and I say I think Switzerland will be kicking themselves that they could have 
given themselves three points and basically guaranteed themselves in the place in the next round already. Mm. Great story around uh, Kiefer Moore having played non-league football for way too long and now currently he plays for Cardiff City. Uh, like uh, James said, he seems to be a handful, right? Especially up front, he's a, he's a, he's a big boy, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, he is he's a big boy, and I think he, you know he did well as well to to I think uh, sustain a, a cut and, and went on to play and you know uh, a la Beckenbauer-ish <laughs> with the headband and all that. Uh, but yeah, I think the game in general didn't do too much for me. I think I was watching with my with my six year old son, and after half an hour, he said, "Can we watch Star Wars instead?" So you, you can tell that the, <laughs> that the match didn't do too much for him. In terms of, uh, of of a lot of action, but I think in the second half uh, is when the boy went on to sleep, unfortunately. But then, then it picked up. But uh, in general, yeah, I, I agree with James in the, in the sense that uh, I don't think these two two sides are uh, uh, you know will, will will stand a good chance of either even topping the group or even getting second. Uh, so it's really a, 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 a just competing for a spot in a third place spot. So uh, in general, both teams just like that cutting edge, and uh, and then, you know there are a lot more better teams in, in this championship. Mm. I was impressed with the pace and power of Bri Lombolo, who, who plays his club football for Borussia Mönchengladbach. You know, Wales really struggled to keep up with him, didn't they, James? Yeah. I mean, say in in the second half. I mean, obviously, I mean, even at set pieces, he was a threat. But in the second half, he was running through that defence almost at will. He was just picking up the ball on the halfway line and just turning and running at them, and they just didn't know what to do with it uh, to do with him. And and this is a guy. He's been around for a long time now. It, it feels like you know he first broke through at Basel, um, and many of us will have seen him play and in the Champions League, and he kind of came to attention. There was a lot of talk about him coming to uh, England but in the Premier League for a long time. He ended up going to Schalke. He was okay at Schalke. Now he's been at, at Mönchengladbach for a couple of years. But he's still only 24 years old. Um, he's six foot tall. He's a big guy. He's physical. He's got pace. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a Premier League team finally mm. making a move that's been talked about for so long after watching him play this game. Yeah, that was the exact thought that came into my mind. Like, you know, a club like Everton can do with a striker like this, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I mean, I was, I was, I was thinking the same thing that he could be a cheaper replacement for for Lukaku. Every <laughs> exactly. Struggle to do, but actually, looking at his stats, uh, I mean, although he was impressive last night, I immediately looked at the stats and for uh, Mochung Labang, you know, he's played about fifty-nine matches, scored thirteen goals, and yeah, which uh, is not a great return, is it? And 10. Yeah, it's not a great return. So. Uh, unless it comes really cheap, uh, I think it's worth a bet. Worth a, otherwise, it might be a uh, you know you, you struggle of signing a you'd be labelled for signing a dud again. Yeah, no, but uh, if he's twenty four, maybe it's worth a chance. Uh, we got a text message uh, from Roland. He's texted us in to say wishing Ericsson a quick recovery and great show as always. Good job, Sassy and guests. So thanks, Roland, for uh, sending us your thoughts on uh, the show and Christian Ericsson. Let's move on. Belgium they played Russia and they beat them three 0 in Russia. Two goals coming from Romelu Lukaku and one from Thomas Mounier, giving the Belgians a comfortable win here. Again, Belgium seems to be the team to beat, um, James. Yeah, I mean, Belgium, similar to Italy, just a very composed, very comfortable performance. They never looked like they needed to get out of second gear. Lukaku was was deadly. But I mean, this Russian team, I I think people kind of forget because they had a good run in the World Cup on home soil in 2018. But going into that tournament, there was a lot of talk about this being the worst Russian team ever um, and that they were not even going to get out of their group stage. And, and their results kind of papered over the cracks that this is still not a very good team. Um, uh, the goalkeeping, uh, sorry, the defending on the first goal was absolutely comical. Mm. The goalkeeping <laughs> on the second goal was absolutely comical. And on, the, and on the third goal, I mean, I think they got lulled by Belgium passing it around and passing it around into thinking that nothing was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, one Belgian player breaks, the ball goes through, they've conceded, and, and, and they don't seem to know what hit them. So I, I, I wouldn't take too much from seeing this uh, Belgium beat this Russian team. They look comfortable, and, and without De Bruyne, obviously, and with, uh, without Azad as, as well, both um, De Bruyne injured, Azad just resting on the, on the bench. But I, I think they'll face much tougher challenges than this going forward. Mm. All right, time for another break. When we come back, we talk about the Lions and their World Cup campaign. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. This is The Rent and joining me in the show are Mark Lim and James Walton. Uh, gentlemen, moving away from the Euros, yesterday we talked about the Lions and their World Cup campaign with Des and, of course, Phil Go. I want to get your thoughts on how you thought the campaign went um, as you guys are observers of local football as well. Um, Mark, I'll come to you. Uh, throughout the campaign, we were texting each other, but uh, how would you summarize the Lions' performance? I think uh, it's basically a, a, a tale of two halves. I, I, this is the best way to describe it. I mean, I think uh, when Yoshida first came, I think we we, we thought you know this was a, he was a breath of fresh air, and the Lions did uh, really well against some of the opponents. I think if you if just to, to remind everybody, I think in September uh, was when they, he started his first uh, series of matches, and they actually drew with Yemen two two. Uh, they beat Palestine two one. Uh, they went on to lose to Saudi and, and, uh, and Uzbekistan, but the Uzbekistan game was fairly, fairly quite close, uh, 3-1. And then after that, they went on to beat Yemen 2-1 again. But I think it just seems like the wheels have come off. Uh, 4-0 to Palestine, 5-0 to Uzbekistan, and um, 3-0 again to Saudi. So I think, uh, I mean, I think Yoshida can only will be the only one to tell us what 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 happened in the dressing room uh, in terms of I think there was uh, as you guys alluded to today there were some uh, departures and obviously the the injuries to Iksan and Safwan and also the absence of uh, Captain Harris uh, made it seem like the, the the whole back line I mean the whole spine of the team was was basically gone so obviously that was a factor as well uh, I can only say that that uh you know this was a shadow of the team that that played in uh, when he first came so you, i would like to give the benefit of the doubt that probably with those guys back uh, things would be better but to me the the more curious thing and the, the more concerning thing is uh is the fact that how the boys look out of depth in, just in terms of uh, 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 physicality as well as uh, fitness and I think Yasi Hanapi also mentioned in, a, in, a, in an article that a lot of the players, uh, they said, he said, were suffering from lack of playing time in the club. Mm. So, uh, like uh, Faris Ramli, Hafiz No, all are, haven't really been playing uh, first level football for their for their respective clubs as well. So I think it it, it requires a whole look at uh, you know whether or not. Uh, obviously, you can't decide whether the players play, but. Uh, the players also have to go into clubs with the mentality that they're not just joining clubs to maybe win matches, but obviously to, to play good football and and and, uh, and and keep them fit and, and going. So I think going forward, uh, especially if we were to focus on this whole unleash the rock campaign, it had, it, it, all these things have to come into play if you if you, you know if, if Singapore football were to 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 develop. Mm. What about you, James? I think uh, I'm sure you watch most of the games. You've been uh, tuning into what we've been saying on the show as well. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've, I've had a lot of online debates about this over the last couple of days, and I've shared, <laughs> I've shared some of these with you, because there's, there's some fans out there who really just use, uh, you know, results like this as an opportunity to bash Baz mm. and bash Gold 2034 and everything else. And I keep telling people, you look at, you look at the FIFA rankings and you look at this group. We were the lowest-ranked team in the group going in, so we should have we ranked lower than Yemen. And yet we're finishing above Yemen, and we and we could have finished above above Palestine. We're finishing level with them, right? But Palestine's 55 places higher in the FIFA rankings. That's the equivalent of Brazil playing Qatar. And then you look at Uzbekistan; they're 73 places higher. Uh, that's the equivalent of Brazil playing like Curaçao. I mean, at the last <laughs> World Cup, at the last World Cup, England played Panama. Those two teams are 73 places apart. England won 6-1. And then you look at Saudi Arabia, they're 94 places higher. That's the equivalent of France playing Luxembourg. And if France were playing Luxembourg, would Luxembourg be complaining if they lost 3-0 uh, to, you know, to a first goal in the 83rd minute? I mean, it, could the performance have been better? Yes. But going into this World Cup qualifying group, maybe the early results got us a little bit overexcited. Mm. But going into this group, you'd have said on paper, we're supposed to finish bottom. If we get a win and a draw um, at home, that would be a, a, a result. And, and it kind of played out that way. It, it's a journey. Um, goal 2034 is a journey as well. The development of football is a journey. This team isn't good enough right now to qualify for the World Cup, of, of course not. It's not good enough to qualify right now for the for the Asian Championships either. But we do have to allow for the players that are missing. A lot of the factors you've just talked about in terms of the level of football that has been played. Um, and there's a long way to go on this journey. So I credit the players that went out there, did their job, gave their heart. The coaches, obviously, the coaching staff as well during these kind of difficult times. Um, and I hope they learn something. I hope they they bring something back from that. 
um, and next qualifying they can go again. You know, it's important that uh, even in failure, we learn something, right? And uh, it's not about saying, okay, we are ranked below these teams, which is all, I think what you're saying is completely valid in terms of ranking and stuff like that. But if we want to improve and we want to progress, I suppose we need to start looking at where was our shortcoming. And one of the things that uh, was really, really telling was that we didn't have a really good replacement for Iksan. You know, by the way, he came on as a sub yesterday for his club in his squad, uh, the winning goal, I think. Uh, and, it, you know, it's quite clear that we missed him. His replacement was his younger brother, Ilhan, who's definitely one for the future, but wasn't quite ready for international football. I, I, I just felt that Tatsuma's hands were a little bit forced in terms of trying to put a striker. He's big, you know, but still a work in progress. And then I looked at the list of top scorers in the SPL. The, Gabriel Quack has eight goals. Yasser Henapi has six. The rest are all foreign strikers. Uh, where do they gonna? Where are they gonna find the? Or where are we gonna find the goals from, Mark? Uh, no, I, I mean yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think I think uh, and the coach probably has to to take some of that uh, the, the tough questions in terms of the team selection. So not just the strikers per se, uh, but even the the goalkeeper because there was a lot of talk about uh, you know why if he filled is one instead of uh, Hassan. Obviously, is one hasn't been playing in a while. But back to your point about about strikers, I think I mean that's the the the, the league. That, I mean that's a situation that most of the leagues face, even even the the Premier League, where a lot of the 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 the, the, the quality marquee signings are always strikers, and that's always gonna gonna dominate you know the the, the starting lineup in terms of all the different clubs. But but yeah, I mean that that's a real concern, and uh, and and I think maybe hopefully with with time you can develop into into more options. But I think looking at the whole team in general, apart from striker and defender as well, I think uh, in, in the midfield they also solely miss Harris, and and uh, and and I think that's another issue that uh, that uh, that the team has to look at. You know, just the, the second generation of players, making sure that the people that come up as well, uh, you know, perform uh, are hungry enough to step in and, and perform. Hmm. You know, uh, we just got another minute, uh, James, before we go into the break. But I, I think it's important that I get you on this one. Gabriel Quack, he's got the most number of goals as a local player in the league. He's got 34 shots uh, so far on target uh, this season. And he only played 45 minutes in the whole campaign. Yeah, I mean, th- th- that that does raise a question for me. I mean, I, I'm not, I can't honestly say whether Gabriel would have done any better. I mean, he has scored eight goals this season, but he, he hasn't scored more than nine in an SPL season in his career. He's got, what, five in 35 games for Singapore. So he, he hasn't proven to be the answer either. But I, I am a firm believer in picking your informed players. Um, and and he, he is the most informed Singaporean player in the SPL, without mm. a doubt. So you do wonder what the reason is for that, whether it's about formation, whether there's something else going on behind the scenes uh, that just means that he's not getting picked. Yeah. yeah. On that note, let's go for a break. When we come back, I want to continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. This is the rant and joining me on the show are Mark Lim, former sports journalist, and James Walton, sports business lead at Deloitte Southeast Asia. We've been talking about the Lions and where they're going to get their goals from. Gentlemen, um, continuing with the topic of uh, local football, uh, James, it's interesting to see the SPL and the number of goals scored. Um, if you're not scoring at least 10 to 15 goals a season as a, as a I would say, local player in the SPL, in the current SPL, you're really not international level, are you? Yeah, I mean, I was with Lionel Lewis yesterday, and we we were we we were talking about you know the the the, the kind of strikers that in his day that were playing the strikers now, and 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 we were both kind of without wishing to put Lionel on the spot, both basically saying the same, which is in, in this league, okay, that it's a it's a shorter season than than some other leagues, and and unfortunately for some players, they are playing second fiddle to. To the foreign strikers. I mean, a lot of our teams do have um, their, their foreign players being the strikers, being the goal scorers, in, in part because of an absence of good Singaporean strikers. But there's people around the fringes of the international squad and being talked about for call-ups that have scored, never scored more than five, six, seven goals in a season um, and and have, you know, career records of, you know, 10 in 60 games, 10 in 80 games and things like that. If you can't score at, a, at say, a, at least a one in two ratio in the SPL as a as a striker, then realistically at international level you're you're just not going to cut it. And for a team like Singapore, you only get those one, two, three chances per game. Um, when you're playing someone like Palestine, Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, you've got to score that first chance because you you may not get a second one. 
Um, and unfortunately, right now, there isn't anyone in that squad or in the SPL right now that we can really say, would you, would you bet your house on them scoring that one chance that you get in the game? Mm. That's a great segue to my next question and a topic of discussion here. Why do we get players out to other leagues as fast as possible? You know, um, sports scholarship for some in the U.S. because they're going to be at least playing at a higher level if they're playing D1 football or something like that. And even the lower leagues of European football, Mark, why, why don't we just get our players out there instead of putting together this young Lions team where they spend over a million, God knows how much they spend on this team. <laughs> um, why don't we then just buy contracts because you can in lower leagues in, in, in European football and place the players there because physically they're going to be challenged, mentally they're going to be challenged and they're going to be good for Singapore football long run. I think, I mean, that, that's a good question. I think definitely, uh, you know, the whole Unleash the Raw campaign and this whole Goal 2034 project, I mean, that could be something that is seriously looked at. But I think uh, having understood uh, and having seen, uh, been around for, you know, for almost two decades in football and, and obviously having seen some of the decisions that the players themselves have made in the last uh, two decades or so, I think the players also have to take some of the blame for that. I think there has been issues where, uh, people have come in to offer contract and all that, but uh, time and again, and I, I perhaps we won't even mention the the, the 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 situation, the exact situation. And I think you can just Google it to check. But there were been instances where players have turned down the opportunities to go to Europe, and I think uh, these left a bit of taste in the mouth of uh, of uh, of the, the people that were offering the the, the 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 opportunities. And I think that probably has to change. I think you have to realize that at the end of the day, while playing football in this region is a good, is a, is good financial, is decent financially and will give you, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, probably a, a guaranteed maybe first 11, first 13 place in the, in the squad. But I think you always have to challenge yourself, especially if you're younger. You know, if you're only maybe 20, like 24, like Embol or 24 and below, uh, you know, it's worthwhile trying your, your luck in an, in an, another league and see whether you can devote two to three years to see whether you can really excel at a higher level. And if you're not, okay, fine, you can come back to this region. But if you can, I mean, the, 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 you know, the sky's the limit. So I think the players have to be open for that. I think uh, whether it's, it's Fundy before or some recent players in, in recent years have all decided to stay here for whatever reasons. And we won't regard them of that because everybody's entitled to their own decisions. But sometimes I think you need players to regularly take the step up. James, you know, we're talking about that, right? It, it's really, really important to now think of the S, uh, SPL, at least for the rest, I would say five to 10 years, nothing's going to change in terms of the, the standards not going to dramatically rise in the next five to 10 years, which really means that this is not a place to develop. All the more we should now really focus in on how we can actually export players and, and create that opportunity for players to play in a bigger league. Are you in line with that or you think that, no, just let them play here and develop here? No, I mean, I'm, I'm 100% in line with that. And we're still waiting for the details of, of Goal 2034 and Unleash the Raw. But it's one thing that's absolutely certain that will be in there, um, you know, categorically, is that there will be um, schemes around getting players into foreign leagues. There's been talk around even buying a team in, in the Belgian league and uh, over the years and things like that. Um, and I, and I, think Faz, I think Faz's goal is to get more players into... Uh, the universities um, mm. in the US and Australia that have good footballing programs and maybe get some scholarships there, both men and women. Um, and in an ideal world, honestly, there are people at the top of FAS whose idea is that if we can get the entire Singapore national team playing in the European leagues, the Japanese leagues, even in, even in the Thai league is a, is a much higher standard than, than Singapore, then ultimately that will be better for the national team. But it does mean, as you rightly point out, that you're effectively you're sacrificing the SPL then because once you send all those players overseas, the quality of the SPL will get even even less. Um, and then you have to look at what is the SPL for. And I think ultimately the SPL will be a league for developing younger players to a point where they can go overseas um, and, and become better. Mm. You know, we just got a text message from uh, Wenlong again. Thanks for sending in this message. He said, if trying to play in Europe, there will be issues of the granting, non-granting of work permits. And if they don't meet or meet the eligibility requirements in the EU or UK, I can answer that because I've been doing a lot of work in this in the last, I would say, 15 years. There are markets where you can send players. There are markets that non-EU players, for example, Portugal is one, uh, Switzerland is the other one, Belgium, and some Scandinavian countries like Iksan playing in Nor Norway, he doesn't require it to be EU. So the reality is when 
people think about playing in Europe, they think about playing in the UK or the Premier League or English League football, which is not going to happen because we, we just don't meet the criteria. But there's so many other places in Europe that definitely higher level of football in, in, in Singapore. Uh, Mark, I want to I want to come to you and, and give you one really good example that I found and I've been you know following them as well. China actually sent a team of under 15 players. They are playing in the La Liga youth system since 2019. They play against the likes of uh, Real Madrid Barcelona, but they don't count as points on the table. So they do play in the league, but the, the points are not uh, reflected. This was a partnership between La Liga and, of course, the Chinese Football Association. What a great idea. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, and definitely something to explore as well. And I think it was Indonesia who, who if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, sent a team to, to Italy or, or it was some of the, uh, or is it Slovakia, one of the teams before. And this was a few years ago when they had like a, a a golden generation of these young players that uh, that was was tipped for bigger and better things, but obviously that hasn't happened in Indonesia as well. But so with the question about with with uh, so it's definitely a good thing and 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 to expose the players. But the only question with with uh, sending one batch of players is is that you know you and as we know with youth football, uh, even if you send a team of twenty twenty five to to a to a to a, a, a centralized training for X number of years, you're only going to reap the benefits of maybe about maybe. Uh, you know, twenty twenty five percent of that of that squad. Uh, unlikely that everybody in that squad will perform and, and go on to be in the national team. So I think you need li- different little aspects of uh, not just one particular team, maybe a few gen- a few generations of uh, of squads of uh, under fifteen, under sixteen, under seventeen playing at a top level. And obviously, you need the the, the Premier League here to, as well to to unearth maybe some of the talent and the youth system in the different clubs as well to. To, to go out and look for that talent. So mm. I think everything needs to perform in, in uh, you know, you, you can't just say, okay, we're banking on this, all the kids are going to, to say Italy or Spain, and that's that. I think everybody has to pull in, pull in the weight and, and, uh, and the, 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 the fruit, and the, the, basically the final result of that national team that will compete in, say, 2030 or 2032 or whatever, will probably have facets of everything that will come together. Yeah. James, who do you think should take responsibility for this right now? Like, you, in, in, you've been you've been involved in football and, and you know this scene quite well now. Who do you think? I mean, give me a person, give me a name, give me a title for that person who has to take responsibility for this. You you, you want me to arrow someone right now? <laughs> <laughs> so in true Singapore um, style, let's arrow, arrow someone. <laughs> I don't know if it's arrow or stubble. It's one or the other. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, actually, I would I would genuinely say, and, and not just because I don't want to arrow someone, it's not about one person. It, it is about football association but we're talking about 10 years out here the people in charge of football association in five years time will be different than the people that are there now um it's about sports singapore you, you like to think uh, so right you like to think so yeah. <laughs> well, it's about sports singapore and putting the money in the right places and supporting and and don't forget sports singapore run the active sg academy which is a key part it's about the private sector and the private sector academies and how they work it's about mccy putting focus on sports. It's about parents um, putting trust in, in, in sports and the system. So it really is um, about everyone. But um, honestly, um, you know, FAS are, have the most critical role in this because they, they're the ones that are going to have to operationalize the next three or four years. But if we don't all do it together, um, there's no point, honestly, if we sit back and say FAS, FAS will do it and wait for it to happen, uh, nothing's going to change. Mm. You sure you're not Swiss, huh? The way they answered that question. <laughs> you know, all right, gentlemen, on that note, I must say thank you so much and uh, solid input as always. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. I'll speak to you soon. Have a good weekend. Okay, guys. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. Every week, I have an athlete or a sports personality in the hot seat to talk about their life in sports. This week, I have former National Paralympic swimmer, Teresa Go on the show. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Hey. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, good to have you on the show. I had you on my list of sports personalities to interview, and I finally got a chance to speak to you. Again, so I'm <laughs> very happy about that. How, how, how have you been? Um, I've been good. I think mostly. I'm really lucky to... Uh, be I guess in the position that I am you know I don't really have to worry about much uh, stay at home take care of myself make sure you know I, I really don't don't have much to worry about lah. so everything's good on yeah. my side <laughs> that, that's great to hear you know for those um, 
listeners tuning in and listening to you, um, they must be wondering because you retired uh, last year. They must be wondering what you've been up to. You told me just <laughs> before we started recording this. Maybe you can tell us what you've been up to lately. Yeah, I think I really kind of believe I retired at a pretty good time mm. because I didn't have to go through the whole worry about where do I go now to train if things, you know, get um, knocked down or I think I've, I'm still in contact with a lot of my friends who are still active athletes and I hear a lot about the issues that they're facing, you know, that, that comes with the whole pandemic, um, specifically as an athlete. Um, for me, personally, I've been working at Sports Singapore for roughly a year now. Um, and when I started, it was when we went, we, we just actually got into, went into lockdown. So it's it's been interesting, <laughs> a very unique uh, perspective of uh, working. Yeah. You know, you're not the first one to say that when they started the new job and the whole country went into lockdown. So they didn't really get to see a lot of colleagues, I suppose, like you, right? Yeah, I, I didn't get to meet a lot of my team, you know, uh, until uh, only over Zoom, right? And Skype and stuff or emails. And it's it's a bit of a struggle, I think, for a lot of people. Mm. Um, not not being able to have that kind of human connection, I think, is, is a struggle for a lot of people who are, ex- especially if they're extroverted, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, like so I, I <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I guess I don't have a problem because I'm quite introverted. So I'm pretty happy staying at home watching my shows and not having to talk to people. <laughs> you know what? There's one thing I don't want you to do is be introverted on this show because I want to <laughs> have a, a good proper conversation about your life and, uh, you know, all the great achievement you got. Of course, of course. One of the things that I like to do with my guests on this show is to take them back in time, you know, roll back the good old years and go back to your early childhood, so to speak. I want to ask you about yourself. Like, how was your childhood like? My childhood was pretty happy. I mean, my parents uh, took a lot of pictures and videos of me because I was a firstborn child. (laughs) We, you know, we get the privilege of having a lot of photos, (laughs) a lot of videos. And usually my photos are of me laughing or smiling, you know, Um, I mean, it didn't. It, it did come with its fair share of challenges. You know, I was born in case people didn't know with a spina bifida, and that really meant just basically that my I, I couldn't use my lower limbs and I couldn't walk right. Um, so that provided a kind of a unique set of challenges for my parents having me as a firstborn. <laughs> Uh, having having children, you know, as you would know, they don't come with manuals, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah. So I think for my parents, it was especially, I guess, challenging in that time. Um, and they, you know, they they did what they could and brought me up really independently. And I'm I'm really lucky, you know, to be born under them. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I think my childhood was pretty happy. Just mm. uh, a little bit of uh, spots of challenges, you know, regular visits to hospitals. Um, but other than that, like I think I pretty I had a pretty normal childhood. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing you say that because you say it with such you take it in the chin and you say, you know, that's just a way of life and I was happy and it's so beautiful to hear. But you know, growing up, obviously a lot of other kids they would run around, do things. Yours was a little bit different. What did you turn to? I think because you know, as children, we don't really notice, you know, when people are different. So unless unless it's pointed out to us, right? So it was the same for me. I was never really, um, I, I didn't really face any sort of, I guess, bullying or stuff like that. Uh, and I didn't really notice also that I was different until much, much later. Um, so my childhood, like the childhood period was actually really quite, I, I think it was quite nice. You know, a lot of the, also because I don't remember them, right? <laughs> uh, mm. A lot of the, the hard parts or the challenges, my parents will be the ones who remember that. Um, I do remember one of the incidents that they they've told me about is when they tried to enroll me into kindergarten. Mm. Um, they had a lot of trouble because the moment they said that, oh, my child has a disability, uh, they get turned down pretty quickly. So my parents had to be a bit creative. They uh, enrolled and once I got accepted, then they said, oh, by the way, she has a disability. You can't take her back. <laughs> Uh, so you know it's 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 a bit of a trial and error um, and also having to bend the rules a little bit I guess you know um, but once I got into kindergarten I think it was pretty 
regular, you know. I, I a lot of kids maybe were if they got they were running around, I'll just crawl around, mm-hmm. and I got around mostly by crutches and and walked around like that. Uh, it was only later on lah, that I I used the wheelchair, mm-hmm. and I found that that was so much faster and. I, I definitely gained a whole lot of independence being on the wheelchair compared to, in my opinion, the crutches. I'm talking to Teresa Go, former Paralympian and, of course, one of the top athletes in Paralympics here in Singapore. Teresa, I want to ask you about school. How was school like for you? Primary school and secondary school, where did you go to and how was that part of growing up? So school was fun for me. I I, I enjoyed school um, as much as a, a regular kid, I guess. I went to uh like I think my, my primary school was a bit interesting because they they had like a first year. It was a new school, so there was a first year in a older school, and then we moved to the new school. So I was in Chaonan Primary for the first year, and then we moved to Tampadis North Primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the second year onwards and Tampadis North was really accessible actually they, they, they were a new school you know the building um, the building was built with uh, accessibility in mind so there was the lift and all that right and ramps um, so that, that I guess that part of school life wasn't an issue because everything was accessible um, but then later on, after after I went to secondary school, I went to Dunman Secondary. Um, it was not the most accessible. There wasn't a lift, but I at that time, I was using crutches, so I could still go up the stairs mm. uh, whenever I needed to. But the thing that my school did was to adapt uh, around me. So instead of sometimes, you know, secondary one, you're in the first floor, mm-hmm. secondary two, you're on the second floor, um, and then you go upwards, right? For my school, for my class, they we remained in the same classroom for um, all my five years in school, and they, you know, they did that because they 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 had me in mind, like, You know, mm. and if I did need to go upstairs for like computer class or whatever, I used the crutches, and my my classmates would help me. That's very nice of them. Yeah. On that note, let's uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we continue this conversation. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. I'm joined on the show by Teresa Goh, former Paralympian. Just before the break, Teresa, we were talking about your growing up years. When were you introduced to sport and, of course, the sport of swimming? Mm, I was introduced um, really as early as I can remember. Swimming, I think, is a pretty, I mean, it's an, an understatement if I say it's a popular sport. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a swimming pool you can find every kind of stone's throw away in, in Singapore. Um, so for my, my family, it was really the same. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time during the weekends at the pool, just playing as kids. Um, I have two other siblings, a brother and a sister. And so my family would, you know, just go to the pool, play and, and enjoy the water. So for me, it was the same. And I think I, I really took to the pool, the water, because I felt like, I mean, I didn't really consciously know it then, but I realized that the pool was the one place I felt the most amount of freedom. You know, um, especially if I compare it with land, uh, a little curb, a little step would already kind of hinder my journey. But in the pool, I can go wherever I want to. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed the water. I've always enjoyed the feel of it. Um, and then it was later at, I think, when I was 12 years old, I was introduced to competitive swimming by the... Uh, this volunteer who was at the Singapore Disability Sports Council mm. and you know one of he came up to my dad and and at the pool at one of the public pools and asked him if he wanted to bring me to uh, participate in uh, national championships and I did and you know the rest is kind of history <laughs> you know it's always amazing when I find these moments these inflection points where your life could have taken different turns right imagine that gentleman didn't turn up in the pool or you decided for whatever reason not to be in the pool, you won't be here today, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's fascinating, right? Yeah, All it is fascinating. One step, one little step and it could have changed your, your life. Yeah, and it's called the butterfly effect if I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what it's called. And uh, it's in fact, just today I was talking to a friend in the US about that. But talking about that, how did you do in that in that first competition? Oh, I, I did really well. I think I, I attribute a lot of my journey to being really successful in the start, but also 
on the flip side, being really successful at the start also meant for me that when I eventually did experience my first um my first experience of failure, that was really hard for me to take because I didn't quite prepare for it that moment, you know. So I mean the first national champs I did really well. They put me in the national team. I trained, I, I did well overseas. I you know I kind of it was a mix of uh I think good timing and uh uh kind of a, a bit of a natural talent in the water. Mm. And so I did well. I, I had a lot of I guess what people would say is a lot of success and then um that kind of just gave me a little bit of push to just keep going on. I want to talk about 2001. You won the first of 30 Asian, ASEAN rather, para, uh, para Games medals d- during your swimming career. That's a lot, 30 to win. Well, <laughs> the first one is always special. Do you still remember that one? The first one, I do remember it. I remember it was the first kind of major championship competition that I went to. And it was my first time being in a team uh, of so many people, you know, and then not just the, the team of the, my, my, my swim mates. It was also being involved in a competition with so many different sports, you know. Mm. Um, I was, I was, well, I was kind of, uh, I was still, still really young. <laughs> I was new. I was the newbie, you know, I was uh, excited. Um, but I also remember going home after the, the competition and being like, I think I was crying in my room and my mom saw me crying and she asked me why I was crying. And I just said, I, I really miss my teammates, you know? Mm. Uh, and it was, it was hard being away from what was, uh, what felt like family for over two weeks. That's very nice. Yeah. 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 Talking about 2004, you became the first female athlete from Singapore to compete in the swimming Paralympic games your star seemed to be rising and rising and rising and your <laughs> talent took you to different places. What That must have been, I suppose, you, you're winning and you, and you know you're good, but going to that level must have been really special. I think, yes, the, the Paralympic Games for the very first time is something that I, I will never forget because it was the one place that I felt like I finally felt like I belonged. You know, everywhere I looked was somebody with a disability. Everywhere I looked was somebody I felt like me. Mm. Um, and I did honestly, I didn't really view my journey as super successful at that point because um, I think what contributed was the way my coach taught us to look at our performance. So it was always a constant desire to be better and better, and not to kind of. Uh, dwell on past success, past successes mm. so he never told us to get gold or you know get this medal get that medal it was always um it was always timing based it was always uh, be faster than who you were last last year or, last, or yesterday you know um but yeah the Paralympic Games was really really amazing and because I was in an environment that I don't usually get to be in I knew that I wanted to continue to experience this. I wanted to come back. And um, my coach at the time, uh, Uncle Peng Xiong, Uncle mm. Xiong, he, you know, he told me, you, I did I did pretty well. I got into the finals, all my finals in all my events. You know, I, if I put a bit more hard work into this, uh, a bit more time into this, I would be able to potentially be really successful. And at the time when I got home after the Athens Paralympic Games, it was my, was it my O-levels? I think it was my O-levels. <laughs> mm. um, and, you know, it's a, it's a big, busy time. And I, I took my O-levels. I was kind of decide, undecided on what to do because I really enjoyed school. Uh, I enjoyed being around my friends, you know, schoolmates and doing something, I, I suppose, other than swimming, you know. Mm. Um, but in the end, I think I weighed my options and I realized that I could go back to school anytime I wanted. But training is something that had almost a time limit on. So I I, I actually quit school after, I quit poly, Tetamasic Poly after uh, about a semester. Mm. And I went to into full-time training. That's a big move. How did your parents? Uh, how did your parents uh, react to that one? Honestly, they've always been supportive. You know, they it's not without uh, a little bit of questioning. You know, they make sure that they 
they they asked me if this is something I really wanted to do. Uh, have I thought it through? Am I sure? But it was not. It was. It was not like don't do it. You know. Mm. So they've always been supportive and encouraging in um, practically every aspect, uh, allowing me to make my choices, allowing me to make also my mistakes. Right. Mm. Um. But in the end, you know, I make I make my choices and I go with whatever I chose without regrets. Uh. I would say very different from 90% of the or 99% of <laughs> Singapore parents who who feel that no you got to stay in school that's going to that's going to feed you long term. You I know? mean you got to give credit where it is you yes. know my parents have always been the kind of parents who um they say what they need to say they say their piece but you know in the end um they make us they allow us to make our choices you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. They sound really, really awesome and really cool. All right, time for another break. When we come back, we continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. I'm joined on the show by Teresa Go, former Singapore Paralympian. Teresa, just before the break, we we're talking about how you had to quit school. You know, you managed to convince your parents you must be a really good salesperson, I must say. You got really good sales skills. Because sell uh, ice to an Eskimo. <laughs> exactly. So you managed to to get that done. And I want to talk about 2008 because you went to the Summer Paralympic Games in Beijing. Didn't go exactly the way you you imagined it to be. Would you say that that was one of your maybe shortcomings or failure? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really determine it like as a bad thing now, you know. Hmm. It, it, it was really, I mean, it was my, my lowest point in my entire career, you know, no doubt about that. But I definitely attribute a lot of my future success, you know, to that particular moment. Um, and like when I was mentioning how my journey started out really well, um, no, no kind of barriers, no restrictions, no sort of what people deem failures at the start. You know, that led to that very moment where I was just not ready for what was to happen like in Beijing. Mm. Um, it was it was just after I I went into full time training, so it was four years of full time swimming, nothing else but swimming. Um, and me being kind of at that point where I hadn't really realized that the importance of balance, right? Mm. I I I just couldn't I I didn't grasp that importance yet. So I didn't quite know it, but I was getting more and more burnt out as the time went by. Um, and before I knew it, it was four years later. It was, I was stronger, sure. I was faster in some ways, <laughs> mm. but I was also a lot more tired and unsure also about myself because I was, um, I was constantly having to convince myself that I was good enough and convince myself that I was confident, you know, um, I was just talking to my sports psychologist, my first sports psychologist the other day, and we were talking about Beijing. And I told her, you know, honestly, I wish I could have been more honest with you because I told you on certain days that I was uh, this level of confident, but actually I wasn't, you know. So, yeah, I think that that eventually, if if people didn't know, <laughs> I I was I guess I was slated to hit top three. Uh, get one of the medals, top three medals, um, but I missed out just by uh zero point seven seconds. So that was that was really hard for me to to kind of bear that 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 news. You know when I heard about it, when I finally realized what had happened, um, and and then for the next few years also. Mm. If you're listening to this show and you start to think that top-level athletes don't go through a slum. Uh, here's an example of how <laughs> athletes also suffer. They're only human. But I also feel that, you know, athletes going through such moments actually makes you really stronger afterwards, right? It's the rebound. When you come back, you come back so much stronger. We've seen over time, so many athletes have a bad games or a, a bad run, bad month or a bad year, and they come back really strong. And that's what you did, right? You came back really strong afterwards. Yeah, I mean, there is so much talked about success right but yeah. then then there's there's so much harm in that because you then set up a generation over after generation of athletes who expect that success is natural um but then no one prepares them for failure you know mm. so i think on the on on the 
football, you want people to succeed and sure that is the nature of sport, you know, to win. But it's that pick, it's that pickup, right? You know, uh, that a lot of athletes are not prepared for. They don't know how to do it. They don't know. They they just are not ready for it. So while you may experience failure, if you are able to get back up, that is like us. It's not a lot of us who can do that. I I feel. Mm, absolutely right. Do you think more so it's in Singapore that way because we are in such a high pressure, everything is about results and do you feel that it's unique to Singapore or, or everywhere in the world it's like that? I think it is a uh, a lot of things are dependent on your country, right? On on your environment mm. and for sure I think Singapore's culture of um very kind of uh, results oriented and and uh, ultimate success kind of you know mm. um the goals are oriented are, are there and it will affect the the face of sport for sure which is why it's so important then of how your own coach your personal coach or the people around you how do they how do they build you up how do they bring you up how do they surround you are they there in good and bad times you know mm. do they like i think the importance of showing athletes especially at a very very young age that it doesn't it really doesn't matter whether you win or not you know it's it's that it's and it's, it's such a cliche thing to say but it's it's really the journey is so important mm. and i feel like if we could change that mindset of um not always focusing on an athlete's successes you also want to be there when they are not successful mm. you know we can only wish right <laughs> <laughs> yeah we can only wish yeah i i don't think it's um only Singapore for sure I think it's uh, something that every every other country faces I suppose so but talking about bouncing back in style you bounce back in style you know throughout your career because I want to talk about you being named twice sports girl of the year three times sports woman of the year two public service star awards and you've been inducted into the Singapore women's hall of fame I mean talk about honors I don't know another athlete <laughs> who's been on this show has won so many uh, honors that's the end game isn't it i mean when you when you go through all the trials and tribulations and when you um, win this kind of accolades does that one come full circle for you then i mean i'm going to be honest like these things don't really matter to me um i think accolades and and awards can be awarded to anyone based on the person awarding them right if if i deem you to be successful i'll give you this award but then am i really successful <laughs> i think it's it's always so um subjective and i definitely don't think i like to mm, base my life on all the importance of my life based on how many accolades i got i, I get in the end but isn't that the byproduct of your hard work i i mean maybe it's it's also really harmful in the end because i feel like then that really diminishes the the hard work of other athletes who may not be as seen or or Mm. prominent you know and i think the like what is more important to me in the end is um more than just those those tangible things you know it's all the, the other stuff like how do i impact the world that i'm in how do i kind of live um when i when i finally exit this world how do i leave it better than i came into it you know mm. i think those are the things that are definitely more important than how many awards i get or medals i get Wow, that's a brilliant answer. I've never thought about it that way, but again, I learned something interviewing someone today. That's amazing. <laughs> I tell you what, time for another break as I try and catch my breath with the last answer you just gave. We come back and and we continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Sunday. I'm joined on the show by Teresa Go, former Paralympian. Just before the break, Teresa just schooled me on a few <laughs> things. Thanks, Teresa, for that. But I want to move on and talk about retirement. Not too long ago, you called it a day. Was it hard for you? It's it was, you know, honestly. I I would say that it wasn't my first time considering it, you know. Um I've over the 20-year period of my career considered leaving a couple of times and it's it's always it's always a consideration and like uh is it time now to finally leave um and then i have to go and consider all the other things and ultimately what really what really kind of settled the decision for me was 
when I thought about the next year or the next year or the next year and I, I, I asked myself if if I'm not swimming anymore am I going to regret it you know and I think I, I I finally got to the point where I was like no I'm 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 actually okay I'm I'm gonna leave I'm gonna be happy and I'm ready actually to move on 20 years is a long time to be doing something and and just you know going away from it and say okay tomorrow when I wake up I'm gonna do something <laughs> something new I mean for me as a professional footballer when I called it a day it was so hard like six months mm. I was really depressed because that's all I knew for a long time and mm, mm. I, I miss being in the dressing room I miss winning and stuff like how, how did you deal with it I mean I, I won't say I don't miss those moments I definitely miss um competitions there's always some parts of the career which are more enjoyable right <laughs> i i definitely miss the the my teammates my my team the people i work with um on the deck uh in the gym and all that stuff i i i i think the the thing that sealed it really was the in, inner desire of what do i truly want to do um and i wanted to move on i wanted to go and do something else and mm. I would say that I am lucky that I got a choice to do it. A lot of people don't get the choice. Mm. Um, they're forced out or by injury or, or whatever reasons, right? So for me, I didn't take it lightly, you know. I, I I prepared for it. I think a lot of my friends would have heard me say more than once and on more than one occasion, not that not just the final time, you know, of me saying, Oh, I think this is the last time I'm gonna swim. Um, but then when I finally did it, you know, it was uh, a certain it's a level of certainty that I needed to get to before I really made that choice um, and I still think about I mean I, I still miss the competitions I, I miss traveling I miss uh, meeting my competitors actually mm. um, but I definitely think down know that I made the right decision how do you fill the void how do I fill the void yeah that's, that's, a, that's a gap in your life now right you're not competing and how, how, how do you fill that void I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I will ever be able to get rid of that identity of being a swimmer. I think it will always stay with me. Um, I will always be a Paralympian, a swimmer, no matter what. But there's always, uh, I think we have to remember that there's always more to life than just one thing. There's always more to life than sport. There's more to life than work. There's more to life than one thing, you know. Um, and I knew that I, I may... I, I may have felt lost for a bit, um, but I also, <laughs> I really enjoyed the rest that came with it. I really enjoyed not feeling constantly sore. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I strangely sometimes still miss training, um, but, but I don't miss it to the point where I go back. <laughs> mm. I suppose you're still involved with Sports SG that keeps you more or less close to the game still, right? Mm, yes, I, I I still am involved in sport. I will always want to be involved in sport, and I am also still in touch with a lot of my my athlete friends. So kind of still in the world without really being inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best place to be, I suppose, when you retire. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know you kind of stand up and you are quite vocal for different causes, and one of the cause is for the LGBTQ community. Mm. What is your take on being inclusive here? I think no matter which community we're looking at, I think the the matter of being inclusive is it's it could be really it, it should be really simple, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Just creating Absolutely. a world where everybody's included. I don't think you can get simpler than that. Um <laughs> I think a lot of times we exclude because of fear, because of um a lack of knowledge. Um but I, I do think like most days I have pretty positive um, outlook on it. I think I'm pretty hopeful. Um, I have, I hope, I believe, I mean, I want to believe that people are, uh, are kind, you know, in the end and want to learn and want to be better. And um, I think that's the only way, the, the only way we can see that I think is also to emulate that ourselves, you know, to, be the kind of person that you wanna you wanna see in the world. So I try to do that. Sometimes it's not easy, but um 
we, we can only do our best, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's getting better. And yeah. still a long way to go. Yes, for I sure. I want to talk about uh, your fellow Paralympian, Yiping Xiu. She was on the show as well. And uh, you guys have, of course, worked together for such a long time. You know, she took the route of politics. Obviously, she became an NMP and she, and she champions different courses. Have you ever thought about that route? Um, definitely. I think um, I would say she's a lot braver than me because she tends to just jump in. <laughs> not not without preparation, you know, but she just jumps in. And I think I, I just hold a little bit more fear than she does. Um, it's something I've thought about. I wouldn't put it past me to do mm. it. Um, but I, I guess I'm just waiting for the right time. I'm waiting for um, the right opportunity. Yeah, if MCCY Minister Edwin Tong is listening to the show, which he does, he, he does listen to the show. Oh, really? Minister Edwin Tong, if you're listening, uh, Teresa just opened the doors for an invitation. <laughs> but let's talk about being directly involved in the sport of swimming and, and, and Paralympics as well. What sort of role do you play? Are you still active in, in that community? Do you think of being a coach or a mentor? Um, I think being a coach is definitely the ultimate goal for me. I do want to be in that role one day. Um. At the moment, I am in the board, the, the board of uh, Singapore Disability Sports Council's board, mm. and I, I help with certain decisions. Um, and I think having that athlete's voice helps. Uh, Pingxi is also in the board uh, with me. And, and so I think, I think one of the things that I really struggled with when I retired was how do I continue to give back? How do I continue to be involved in something that has provided me with incredible amount of opportunities right so yeah this was one way I, I felt like I could do it and um, I'm, I'm honestly still still not quite 100% there yet I still am looking at ways to be more um, more involved more um, more effective I guess in in providing change Mm. yourself and Ping Xiu, both of you are like the poster child of uh, disability sports. Do, <laughs> do you think you should be doing more for the sport? Do you think, I mean, now that you said you're on the board and stuff like that, do, do you feel deep down that you should do more for the sport? I think we can only do so much. And mm. I, I do believe that there's always room to allow more voices. I definitely don't think we are the, you know, the the only people who can speak up for disability sport in Singapore. I think there are a lot of young people, younger people. I won't say I'm very old, but <laughs> I say I think there are a lot of younger people who have voices and have opinions and definitely should be heard also. Um I I guess I would I just say I, I would I'll be wherever I think I see I'm needed. And people feel like I can contribute, I want to contribute, you know? Looking back at the time you spent in swimming, any regrets? Nah, I'm not one for regrets. <laughs> yeah, I can. I think I you think, can tell. Yeah, I can tell. I quickly made that up, uh, but I just had to ask you the question. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, no, no regrets. Uh, in that moment, maybe, you know, just thinking every athlete has that, what if uh, I could have or should have all these thoughts, right? Hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't have any. I I am pretty happy, really, really happy with how everything has turned out. Hmm. You know, this is one question that I ask all of my guests before I let them go. Yeah. What would you like to be remembered for? <laughs> um, I think I would like to hopefully be reminded as a kind person. Hmm. Yeah, I think simple. Just, just that. <laughs> Just before my colleague uh, Yasmin Yonkers this morning, I was talk yesterday morning rather. I was talking about coming on this show and talking to you, and she said, "You know, Teresa goes such a lovely person and such a kind person." So I guess that's how that's you. One. Oh. <laughs> that's how I suppose people remember you. So I think you got your wish. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Teresa. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think this was uh, really entertaining and uh, educational as well at the same time. Thank you so much. 